Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Ren Bangert, a producer here on the show. Our theme this week is activism and academia, and today we're bringing you an episode on a particularly thorny issue in academia. Many scholars claim to work towards an ideal of decolonization, but when it comes to actually speaking out against ongoing acts of colonialism, academics are often silent, or they're silenced. Today's episode originally aired in May of 2021, while violence was erupting all along the Gaza Strip. Israeli airstrikes had left over 200 Palestinians and a dozen Israelis dead. It was and is a continuation of a story of violent settler colonialism. Our host, Gordon Kaddick, dives into the costs of resisting settler colonialism in the academic sphere, particularly when it comes to criticizing Israel and speaking up for Palestine. The deep dive takes us all the way from analyzing the writings of Theodore Herzl, the founder of modern Zionism, to a controversial debate at York University in 2020. Join us at Darts and Letters as we celebrate joining the New Books Network. Every week this summer, we're broadcasting our favorite past episodes of the show. And stay tuned. We've got brand new episodes of Darts and Letters launching here on the network starting on September 18th. Now, settler colonialism at work in Palestine. Over to you, Gordon. From Cited Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Gordon Caddick. Darts and Letters is a left podcast about public intellectualism, populism, and the politics of academia. I think Pete Seeger said it best. Which side are you on? A nuclear armed state backed by $3.8 billion a year of US aid and unequivocal military and diplomatic support continues to strike the besieged open air prison that is Gaza. As of this recording, May 20th, About 230 Palestinians are dead, and that includes 104 women and children. 12 Israelis have died. Violence is also raging through the streets. I'm quoting now from activist Mohammed El Kurd. Across the country, Zionists are beating, gassing, shooting, lynching Palestinians. They're unhinged. The videos we're seeing are reminiscent of the Nakba state settler collusion emboldened in an unquenchable thirst for Palestinian blood and land. Terrorist, genocidal nation. Elkerd's tweet thread then goes on to add a bunch of videos, some of them from live TV. You'll see in them Palestinians are being beaten to a pulp. He then spoke out about this on US TV. That in and of itself is extraordinary. Mohammed El-Kurd is not the kind of person that you'd usually see on CNN or MSNBC. It's not really an eviction. It's forced ethnic dis- displacement, to be accurate, because an eviction implies legal authority. While the Israeli occupation has no legitimate jurisdiction over the eastern parts of occupied Jerusalem under international law. And what did he get for all of this? After these interviews, Israeli forces arrested him and forcibly removed Mohammed from Sheikh Jarrah. It's a brazen squashing of dissent. 
But this is part of a broader strategy. Israel even raised the Associated Press and Al Jazeera media tower, that tower that watched over Israel's bombardment of Gaza. We panicked, frankly, we panicked. How to leave, when to leave, what to take, where to go. These are like the quick and the fast things that you think of when something like that happens. 24 people were killed in that very attack, including nine children. The violence continues. The UN Security Council is pushing for a ceasefire, but as of recording, the US has blocked it. Four times. Instead, Biden made a phone call to Netanyahu. He's asked for de-escalation. On Wednesday, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu thanked President Biden for his support. I especially appreciate the support of our friend U.S. President Joe Biden for the state of Israel's right to self-defense. I am determined to continue this operation until its objective is achieved, to restore quiet and security to you, the citizens of Israel. Now facing pressure from progressives, Biden has expressed meek support for a ceasefire. But as of Wednesday, the U.S. yet again rejected a U.N. Security Council call, this one from France. As of broadcast, there is no set timetable to the end of these hostilities, but analysts are expecting something by Friday or maybe this weekend. How did this all happen? The Israeli government attempted to evict Palestinians from the Sheikh Jarrah area. This is textbook colonialism. The Jewish settlers said it as much. You can see it in a tweet posted by the Gravel Institute, which I'll link in the show notes. We take house after house. Uh, all this area uh, will be a Jewish neighborhood. We are not finished the job. We are, we are going to the next neighborhood, and after that we will go more. Our uh, dream that uh, all East Jerusalem uh, will be like uh, West Jerusalem, Jewish capital of Israel. The UN Commission for Human Rights has called these forced removals a potential war crime. Israel's called it a real estate dispute. All this was met with massive Palestinian resistance. Then, May 7th, Israel Defense Forces attacked worshippers at the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Sound grenades and tear gas injured 250. Hamas issued an ultimatum. Remove forces from the mosque. They then launched their rockets, and the IDF retaliated with airstrikes. You know where I stand. Israel is the occupying force. They are the settler colonial nation. And I say this to my academic colleagues especially, the ones who are a little hesitant to speak out, especially those that call themselves decolonial, the ones that want to diversify their core syllabus and tear down statues. Fine, good, let's do that. But what about this? In the face of this, which side are you on? quote André Domis, academics want to decolonize everything except actual colonies. Prove him wrong. Take a stance of moral and political courage. Stand up against the brazen injustice that you see right before your eyes. And don't tell me it's complicated. It's actually surprisingly simple. The late, great Michael Brooks said it best. So it's not a complex issue. 
That's the big thing. It's super simple. There's one group that has enormous power. It's the most powerful country in the Middle East. It's backed by the United States. It acts on another population of people with total impunity and is never held accountable for anything. So there's no symmetry in the relationship. It's, it's a pure asymmetry relationship. And the question is rights or not. So that's it. It's not complicated. The international community must insist on a political solution that protects the rights of all people in the region equally. If countries like the US and Canada pull their support, Israel's war crimes will come to an end. And then we might just have a shot at peace. Today on Darts and Letters, I say colonialism is not a metaphor. And Rashid Khalidi tells us that political Zionism was an explicitly colonial project. Khalidi is the Edward Said Professor of Modern Arab Studies at Columbia University. He opens up his family archives and shows us the letters between his great-great-great-uncle and Theodore Herzl. Herzl is the father of political Zionism. And Khalidi unpacks those letters and other Herzl writings. We know that in Herzl's diaries, he wrote about spiriting the population, across, the poor people, the poor population across the borders. Meaning the, the, there, was a, there was an understanding from the very foundation of Zionist movement by its first leader that you couldn't establish a Jewish state in an overwhelmingly Arab country without both bringing in people and removing some of the existing population. But say you are that brave academic who does actually speak their mind. Say you do call this colonialism. Well, that can have consequences. We look at attempts to silence scholars, including here, close to home. Both at the University of Toronto and York University, there are scandals. Faisal Baba teaches human rights at York University's Osgood Law School. When he spoke out against Jewish supremacy, the B'nai B'rith Canada tried to get him removed from teaching his course. Well, the thing about that letter, what became clear to me very soon thereafter was that the letter wasn't really about communicating with the president of York University, because if they wanted to do that, they could. They have a direct line to the, to the president of York University. They wanted to publicly hang me out. They wanted to publicly shame me, and they wanted to attract the, all the negative attention that, that, that came to me as a result. All that and more on Darts and Letters. Stay tuned. You're listening to Darts and Letters, a show about the politics of academia, ideas, and intellectual life. We're proud to be a new member of the New Books Network. And all this summer, we're playing some highlights from our archives. But we're coming back in September. And if you like what you hear now, you'll want to hear that. So why don't you subscribe to our podcast? You can find it by searching Darts and Letters wherever you find your podcasts or going to dartsandletters.ca. Rashid Khalidi is a Palestinian-American historian. He is the Edward Said Professor of Modern Arab Studies at Columbia University. His most recent book is called The Hundred Years' War on Palestine, A History of Settler Colonialism and Resistance, from 1917 to 2017. I called him to ask him about that term, 
that one right in the title, settler colonialism. The discourse has shifted. One could not say settler colonialism. Uh, one could not talk about Zionism. Uh, it was taboo. Zionism was sacrosanct. It was a good thing. It was a national liberation movement. It was the redemption of the Jewish people. It was the miraculous. It came in a miraculous sequence after the horrors of the Holocaust. That's the only way you could talk about Zionism. And you couldn't talk about ethnic cleansing. You couldn't talk about ethno-nationalist religious settlers doing the kinds of things they're doing. I mean, you could, you could talk about a little bit of that. Uh, anything that had to do with the 1967 occupation was basically, you know, fair game. But pretty much anything else was not. You couldn't talk about the Nakba. So yes, the discourse has fundamentally shifted in the past, I would say, maybe 10 or so, 10, maybe 15 years. I think your, your book has some clues as to maybe why. I wanted to maybe start, start where you start. I mean, one thing that strikes me about the book, you say it at some point in the introduction, it's an academic book, it's rigorous, but it's also told in a personal way. And you say that that's kind of rare in, in academic study of Israel-Palestine. Why is that? It's, it's rare in the writing of history, except in their old age. Most historians don't you know, resort to the first person. They don't talk about their personal experiences. Historians are trained to write in the third person with as much objectivity as possible, rigorous adherence to mainly written sources, and so on and so forth. And I've written a number of books in that vein, and I've written some that had a slightly more popular orientation, but which were footnoted and, and which were in the third person. I, mean, I didn't talk about my own personal experiences. With this book, I was urged by my son and by others, relatives and friends, to write something that was relatable, write something that, that would bring this story before people's consciousness in a way that they could understand, ordinary readers could understand, not just, you know, students of the Middle East or uh, history PhD students or, or my colleagues. And so I used papers from the family archives, uh, memoirs of people I knew, my wife's grandfather, the, the father of a friend of mine, my uncle's memoirs, and things that my parents and my and my aunts and, and so forth told me, as well as the things that I myself witnessed. And that's not common for this kind of a book. I mean, there's a memoir genre, and there's a reportage genre. This is a, a, it purports to be a history, but it includes all of this reportorial and, and, and memoir and personal material as well. I want to ask about your great, great, great uncle uh, that you opened the book with. Yusuf Dia uh, al-Khaldi, my great, great, great uncle was an interesting character. He had uh, both classical Islamic education and a, a bit of a modern Western education at a missionary school. So he knew languages. And he studied in uh, Istanbul at, the, at, at, at a variety of Western, modern Western institutions as well. And became an Ottoman diplomat, went to study in Vienna, eventually taught at another stage in Vienna, served as a, as a mayor of Jerusalem. He was actually the first mayor of Jerusalem, the first modern municipality. Uh, he knew a great deal about Judaism. He knew a great deal about Zionism. I don't think he knew Theodor Herzl, the, the founder of modern political Zionism, but he knew of him and he knew about the Zionist movement. So he writes a letter to Herzl in 1898, one year after the first Zionist Congress, and a couple of years after Herzl wrote his famous book, Der Judenstaat, the Jewish state, in which he says to him, you know, I have great sympathy for the Jewish people. We understand their sufferings in Europe at, at, at the hands of Christian anti-Semites. We are cousins, both children of Abraham sort of thing. And I understand where Zionism is coming from. And, you know, we know that Yusuf Leah uh, Al-Khaldi 
had access to the Austrian press because I found copies of the newspapers in the library, his, you know, lying there in the library. He said, you know, the Zionist idea, one can understand it, but there's a problem. Palestine already has a people, and that people is not going to agree to be supplanted. So for the sake of God, leave Palestine alone. He also pointed out that there were Jewish communities all over the Middle East who lived in peace with their neighbors, had no problems. They did not suffer pogroms. They did not suffer the kind of murderous anti-Semitism that you had in Eastern and Central Europe and in the Russian Empire. And he said this is going to completely upend their lives, this idea of the Jews as a modern national entity, which is going to establish itself in Palestine. And Herzl, of course, responded to his credit, but he basically blows him off. Herzl said, first of all, we're not going to harm you. We're going to do you good. Every colonial (laughs) project says it's going to do good things for the natives. We're going to raise you up. We're going to bring capital. Everybody will be happy. We have no intention of harming you. And he added something responding to something that wasn't actually in Yusuf the Al-Khaldi's letter, saying, we have no intention to remove you from the country. Yusuf the never mentioned that. But we know that in Herzl's diaries, he wrote about spiriting the population, across, the poor people, the poor population across the borders. Meaning the, the, there, was a, there was an understanding from the very foundation of Zionist movement by its first leader that you couldn't establish a Jewish state in an overwhelmingly Arab country without both bringing in people and removing some of the existing population. Herzl understood that. Every Zionist leader understood that. Some of them may have hoped, well, we'll just drown them with immigrants. We'll bring in so many people that will overwhelm the existing population. But Herzl seemed to have understood that that was not going to be sufficient. And so uh, unwittingly, he revealed in his response to a concern never mentioned by Yusuf the Al-Khandi, his own intentions. I just want to quote real quickly the the diary entry you're referring to from uh, Herzl, we must expropriate gently the private property on the estates assigned to us. We shall try to spirit the penniless population across the border. It goes on to say the removal of the poor must be carried out discreetly and circumspectly. So this is his own private diary. In what ways is the colonialism discreet and circumspect And where is it clear and stated publicly? Well, uh, you have to understand we're talking about a different world in 1898 or in the 1910s and 20s than we are in the post-World War II era. The post-World War II era is an era of decolonization. It's an era where colonialism and settler colonialism are in a bad odor. Those settler colonies where the existing indigenous population had been extirpated or subjugated north in North America, in Australia, in New Zealand, were in one category. But the rest of the world, there were upheavals against colonialism after World War II. Before World War II, colonialism was perceived as a good thing by the international community. The League of Nations didn't try to undo colonialism, any form of colonialism. Algeria was an ongoing enterprise. The French were settling French French uh, citizens in Algeria at the expense of the indigenous population. Same thing was going in, on in South Africa. South Africa was even given custodianship over Southwest Africa, a former German colony, uh, by the League of Nations. So settler colonialism, as I've said, was in good odor among Europeans. And the Zionist movement was a European movement. It came out of an ethos which said that superior peoples have the right to dominate and take over from and use the resources that are poorly used by lesser peoples. That was the mindset of Herzl, of every European. He's an Austrian. He was a Viennese. 
He was originally from Vienna, but he lived in Vienna. And the Zionist movement self-identified as both a national movement, which it was, but as a colonial movement at the same time. One of the major agencies that was involved in the purchase of land in Palestine was called the Jewish Colonization Agency. And some of the philanthropists, the Rothschilds, Baron Hirsch, and so forth, who were engaged in supporting these endeavors were establishing what they called colonies, not only in Palestine, but in Argentina and other places, to rescue persecuted Jews from Eastern Europe and set them up in other places where they could you know, live, live a decent life. So uh, that idea was, was still in good odor until World War II. And the Zionist movement was unashamedly colonialist, even, even as it saw the land, you know, this is the land of Israel, it's the land of our forefathers, and we are a people and we have a, a right to it. And we've been given by the League of Nations leave to establish a national home here. But that it was a colonial movement, nobody doubted before World War II, including the Zionists themselves. One of the things that stands out is, is even though it's in good odor, as an intellectual project, you kind of have to make the case that the land is not cultivated or the people are retrograde. And you talk about the shoddy academic and pseudo-academic work that is used to make that case. So what is the intellectual project and who are the people that, that make that case explicit for colonialism? Herzl plays an enormously important role. He, he really is the founder of modern political Zion. There are a bunch of others who are quite important intellectually. Max Nordau, Chaim Weizmann, who becomes the leader of the movement soon after Herzl's death, David Ben-Gurion, and Zev Jabotinsky. I would describe those as in the first generation of Zionist leaders, probably the most influential. There were a number of intellectuals and writers who were also important, but as political leaders people who were writing and, and influencing people and at the same time uh, creating political movements, I would say those were the most important. There were several others. To me, the most fascinating is Zev Jabotinsky, who is the founder of what was called the revisionist trend in Zionism. And Jabotinsky was by far the most honest, the bluntest, the most forthright of Zionist leaders. He, by the way, is the founder of the trend in Zionism that has dominated Israel since 1977. His heirs include Menachem Begin, Yitzhak Shamir, Ariel Sharon, uh, Ehud Olmert, uh, Bibi Netanyahu. Netanyahu's dad was the private secretary to Jabotinsky for a period. This is now the dominant trend in Zionism. It wasn't in the 20s and the 30s, and into the, in, in fact, into the 1970s, it wasn't the dominant trend, but it has been since then. And Jabotinsky was very blunt about not only the colonial nature of the Zionist movement, but about the need for force to impose what Zionism was doing and, in his view, had to do on the native population. He said, these people, of course, are going to resist. They understand what we're doing. He, he, he was scornful of what he saw as the self-deceiving or the deceitful mantras of mainstream Zionist leaders that we're, all, we're coming here to live in peace, we don't mean to harm you, when everybody understood that I, the idea was to turn an Arab country into a Jewish state. I mean, how could you do that without harming the population? And so Jabotinsky made no bones about these things. He's kind of like the masks off kind of guy. You know what, you know what it is. He's honest about it. So... You said the post-war period colonialism obviously is in disrepute. So how does the intellectual project, the selling of Zionism in the decolonial period change? Well, something really important happens. The British have a falling out with the Zionist movement starting in 1939. The British are about to fight World War II. 
just as they had to in World War I, they know that they're going to have to fight it in part in the Middle East. They have alienated the entire Arab and Muslim worlds by their suppression of a Palestinian revolt that broke out in 1936. They crushed it with absolute brutal force. They brought 100,000 soldiers. They killed, wounded, imprisoned, and exiled one in 10 of the adult male population. They broke the back of the Palestinian national movement. They created uh, uh, Zionist militias to, as auxiliaries to help them. But on the eve of World War II, once they had finally mastered the revolt, they realized that, oh my God, we have to fight with Indian Muslim troops in, in Burma against the Japanese. Maybe they didn't know what was coming, but that's what was coming. We have to fight in the Middle East, in Iraq, in Syria, in Lebanon, against Italy, perhaps against the Germans, in an area which is entirely hostile to us because of our policy on Palestine. And so they changed their policy. They limited their commitments to Zionism. They stopped immigration. They limited immigration. Immigration had been wide open. In 1935, there were 60,000 Jewish immigrants at the height, of course, of Hitler's persecution of Jews in, in, in Germany. There were 60,000 immigrants to Palestine. That was the entire Jewish population of the country in 1917. In one year, as many people arrived, Jewish immigrants, as had, as had, been, as had made up the entire pop Jewish population of the country 20 years before, or less than 20 years before. The Jewish proportion of the population went up to 33%. And at that point, Zionist leaders realized we now have the critical mass necessary, given that we, have a, we control a larger share of the economy, the British have armed us to the teeth, to uh, take this country over. The Palestinians have been broken by, the, by British repression. And Zionism performs a remarkable maneuver. It shifts from, depending on Britain as the equivalent of a metropole for their colonial project, to depending on the United States and Britain. And this is a shift that had been prepared for previously. A lot of work had been done in particular in the United States. David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister, and Yitzhak Ben-Zvi, the, the second president of Israel, spent years in New York during World War I laying the groundwork for the Zionist movement together with many others. So Zionism had a stream of financial resources coming from America. It had a base in the United States. It had a bases in, you know, some, a great deal of support in Europe. And it basically shifted from depending on the British, who had now turned you know, cold towards them, to depending on the United States and the Soviet Union. And this is a, this is a remarkable shift. It's something that, that Israel was later to perform again in the 50s, turning to Britain and France to support Israel during the, 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 the tripartite war on Egypt in 1956. And why does the United States go along with it? The United States and the Soviet Union go along with it, each for different reasons. Both are looking to dismantle the colonial empires, including Britain's colonial empire in the Middle East. Both are seeking to achieve advantage at the expense of the other. Both are bidding for a movement that they think will be sympathetic to them. This, the Soviets looked at the early Zionist movement and they saw socialist tendencies. The Americans looked at the Zionist movement and they saw all these, all of these supporters of Zionism in the United States. So each for, each for domestic reasons, in the case of President Truman or Stalin, but also for foreign policy reasons, for strategic reasons, saw that the establishment of Israel would be to their advantage. So your book is really a series of what you call turning points. And fast, fast forwarding a bit to 67, how is, how is that a turning point? Well... 67 is a turning point in many respects. First of all, it marks the occupation of the rest of Palestine, the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and, and the Gaza Strip. It marks with uh, UN Security Council Resolution 242, which was passed after the war in November of 1967, a shift 
in how Palestine is seen. What's going on is no longer seen as the Palestine question, which involves the sequels of the 1948 war. You also have a shift towards the United States by Israel, which is underway in the 60s, but really is finalized in, in the lead up to the 67 war. You have a new president in Washington. President Johnson is much more favorable to Israel than had been President Kennedy. And you have in the Vietnam War, as a result of the Vietnam War, a degree of polarization and a degree, I don't know how to put this, the United States is searching for proxies that can help it against the Soviet Union and its proxies. And Israel presents itself as such. We will defeat the Soviet-armed Egyptian and Soviet-armed Syrian armies for you. And before they launch the war, the Israelis send the chief of the Mossad, Meir Amit, to Washington to basically get a green light from Secretary of Defense McNamara and President Johnson, which he gets. And Security Council resolution then caps this. Security Council resolution 242, uh, a few months later after the war, caps this by essentially wiping out everything that had happened before in terms of Palestine. Uh, Palestinians aren't even mentioned in 242. A just solution of the refugee problem. They don't even say the Palestinian refugee problem. They don't see what a just solution is. Most of it is basically the Arab states make peace with Israel. Israel withdraws from occupied territories. Not all of them. Some of them. That's the United States made that verbal opening through which you know the Israelis drove a 20-ton truck in subsequent decades. And so it's very, very important in once again attempting to erase the Palestinians. They're just not there. That's not the problem. The problem is between the Arab states and Israel. And if we solve that, we've solved everything. And just solution of the refugee problem. And it, it sparks all kinds of things. It sparks, among other things, a reaction among the Palestinians, the 67 war and this resolution. And, and it fires up their national movement, the revival of their national movement, which had begun before that. I want to fast forward a bit again to the present day and back to, to what we said at the beginning about you know, the word colonialism being actually thrown around now when, when it couldn't have been in the past. And I, I wonder to what extent does like movements for indigenous rights, Black Lives Matter, other sort of social movements, how, how, how have they maybe contributed to the word colonialism being sort of okay to say? All right. I actually think that they do play a role. I think that this much vaunted term of intersectionality actually does operate here in the sense that, you know, Black Lives Matter demonstrators in Ferguson who are being tear gassed are being sent instructions by Palestinians on how to deal with tear gas because the Palestinians have been dealing with tear gas manufactured by the same American companies for quite a long time. It goes beyond that kind of tactical thing, however. And it has to do you know, with an awakening of a part of the American population, only a part, of course. I don't think that the supporters of Trump are entirely on board all of this stuff or are on board at all. Most of them, but it, on the part of a part, a large part of the American population, as represented in much of the base of the Democratic Party, by the way, which is the majority party, Democrats have won the popular vote in six of the past seven presidential elections. The Democrats are the majority party. It's because of a uh, ludicrous 18th-century constitution written by slaveholding aristocrats who hated democracy that you have the Republican minority controlling the, the, the body politic the way that it does. So the majority party's base has moved in this direction because both liberals and members of minority communities and young people, and young people in particular in the Jewish community, but also in the Arab and Muslim communities and Latinx communities and black communities and other minority communities, see links 
between what has happened to them historically and what has happened to the Palestinians. And I don't think you had this before. Yes, the Black Panthers supported the Palestinians. Malcolm X supported the Palestinians. You had an enormously important solidarity movement with the Palestinians, but it didn't represent the entire civil rights movement. Martin Luther King was very conflicted. Many leaders of the civil rights movement were very careful not to alienate their Jewish supporters by in any way talking about the Middle East. There's still some of that. I mean, you have black members of Congress who are not going to say anything about Palestine, but you have others, the younger ones, the recently elected ones, who are simply not afraid. Their base is supportive of the idea that the Palestinians have rights. I'm curious about academia. You know, in a place in your book, you say that pockets of academia have been supportive of this cause, and the word uh, pockets really uh, stuck out to me. You know, I'm I'm thinking of cases, you know, famous cases like Norman Finkelstein or Stephen Salida, or others. I mean, even currently at U of T, and the uh, retribution. I heard about that story at your law school. Yeah, absolutely. The rep- retribution that supporters of Palestine face inside of academia. To the extent that you can generalize, would you call sort of like the academic establishment an ally or or not of the struggle for justice for Palestinian people? I think you have to differentiate between the hierarchy and the academics and between social sciences and humanities and STEM fields and between generations. You know, the generation for which the Holocaust is foundational and the 67 war is foundational. Most of those people are not going to change. As far as they're concerned, Israel fits with their understanding of liberal values. And so, and those t- kinds of people dominate not only admin- university administrations, they dominate boards of trustees, they dominate the donor class, they dominate the political class, whether it's in Canada or in state legislatures that pass the budgets for universities like the University of Michigan or Rutgers or State University of New York or the University of Texas, or you can go on and on. So when you're talking about those groups, those well-to-do donors, politically powerful politicians who control budgets of, of universities and so forth. When you're talking about the older people in university administrations, when you're talking about a president who's in his late 70s and a Senate majority leader who's 81, and a, uh, sorry, a, a Speaker of the House who's 81 and a Senate majority leader who's in his late 70s, you're talking about people who are in another generation than the folks we're talking about who see justice in Palestine as a, as a legitimate cause. Um, And I think it's also true that in some of the professional schools, in some of the science fields, some but not all, uh, there's less sympathy. However, I think in humanities, in many of the social sciences, and among younger faculty in particular, there's enormous sympathy for the Palestinians. But the decisions, if you go through them one by one, the Finkelstein decision, the Saraita decision, those are not decisions taken by the faculty. The faculty voted to have these people join their departments. It was at a higher level a level susceptible to political interference, a level susceptible to donor interference, that, th- that the veto was, was issued. So I think when you talk about academia, you have to talk about undergraduates and graduate students, you have to talk about younger faculty, and you have to talk about different disciplines. So I wouldn't paint academia as a monolith. I think that there has been a significant shift within academia in the fields that deal with the Middle East. Now, I know that the average proctologist or the average lawyer at the law school who teaches torts may think that they know a great deal about Palestine because they've been to Israel and they have family there and they feel strongly. But the people who actually know something, the sociologists and the historians and the people in literature and so on and so forth, 
have at least become increasingly open-minded about this issue and knowledgeable. Uh, the volume of material that's published on this subject that is actually that actually represents a critical and open perspective is just incomparable to the almost minuscule number of books that were published, say, in the 60s or the 50s or the 40s or the 80s even. I am the co-editor of the Journal of Palestine Studies. We reviewed 16 books by major university presses on Palestine. I, I can't keep up with what's being published. The Journal of Palestine Studies, through JSTOR, which is accessible to you know, university libraries, through the Institute for Palestine Studies website, and through our publisher's website, Rutledge, uh, offers access to downloads of articles. In 2019, there were 220,000 downloads of articles from the Journal of Palestine Studies. In 2020, there were 331 downloads. That's 550,000 downloads of articles from the Journal of Palestine Studies in two years. I mean, that's a volume of information which term paper writers, high school students, MA people writing MA theses, people writing dissertations, academics, policymakers, journalists have access to. I'm curious about the conclusion of the book and what is the, what's the solution that you propose? I don't see a solution coming anytime soon, but when there is a solution, I, I argue that there are only three ways that these things are resolved. Either the indigenous population is extirpated or the settlers are forced to leave, like in Algeria, uh, or as in South Africa, Zimbabwe, Ireland, some form of reconciliation is effectuated. Ireland hasn't fully worked out, obviously, yet, but it, it, they may be on their way to that. And if that's to happen in the case of Palestine and Israel, I would argue that whatever the outlines of the actual solution are, whether it's one state or two states, whether it's a binational state, whether it's cantons, whether it's you know their federation, whatever, whatever it may be, if it's going to be sustainable, if it's going to work, it's going to have to involve complete equality, complete equality of rights for both communities, both peoples, and for all individuals. If one group has the right to bring in members of their community to live as citizens, so does the other group. If one group has the right to its property wherever it may have been, in Eastern Europe, in the Arab world, which they have a right to, in my view, so do the Palestinians, and so on and so forth. If one group has full political rights to vote for the highest levels that make all the decisions, which currently is the case only for Israelis. The only people who vote on what, what, what the important things that happen between the river and the sea are Israelis. The Israeli Knesset decides everything. The Israeli security forces decide everything. The population register is controlled by them. The groundwater is controlled by them. Airspace is controlled by them. Entry and exit is controlled by them. Import and export. There's one sovereign entity. There's one security authority. That's Israel. That has to change. There, there are various ways to do it. There's various ways to achieve equality uh, within a single democratic or within two or more than two. I mean, it doesn't really matter. To, to me. And, and we're so far away from achieving that, that I think it's premature to say, I insist on this outcome. I think you have to insist on certain principles, which could be achieved this way or that way. So I lay out in the book, I start with equality. And I start with obviously trying to achieve some kind of just resolution of this. As Edward Said said once, this doesn't mean dispossessing people in order to make up for past dispossession. You're not going to boot Israelis out of homes 
that formerly belonged to Arabs. But there's space in this country for more people. I promise you, if for some reason three or four million Jews were forced to leave, heaven forbid, some part of the world, Israel would make space for them. And, you know, most people in the world live in cities. So, you know, another city or two or three or four is not going to be a, that big an issue. A bigger issue is going to be water, actually. My personal view is that if you start from those principles, you have the basis for solution. Now, what the architecture of it is, I'm not a politician. I'm not a, you know, I'm not a futurologist. I don't know where we're going to go. But I, don't, I think that that both is the best argument from a Palestinian perspective. It's the most respectful of Israelis. Um, and of Palestinians. And I think it's the only way you relieve the suffering that is mainly felt by Palestinians, but is also felt by Israelis. I mean, the occupier, the dispossessor has anxiety. The slaveholder used to have anxiety. They knew the slaves would rise up at some stage. The Israelis know what has happened. They know that under their homes lie the ruin of Arab homes. They know that the properties that they're living in, the towns they're living in, had other names. 50 years, 75 years ago. They know that. And I think you have to come to terms with that past. That doesn't mean, you know, sackcloth and ashes and atonement and whatever, or repentance or whatever. It means just acknowledging the past, the way that they've done in South Africa, the way that to some, to a large extent, the British and the Irish have done. That was Rashid Khalidi, the Edward Said Professor of Modern Arab Studies at Columbia University. He's author of many books, including recently, The Hundred Years' War on Palestine, A History of Settler Colonialism and Resistance from 1917 to 2017. When academics speak out about Israel and Palestine, they often face enormous retribution. There is a long history of this. Our researcher Dave Moskrop put together a timeline of high-profile cases— I'll link that in the show notes, but let me give you a few of the key beats. In 2004, Alan Dershowitz launched a campaign against Norman Finkelstein. He wanted Finkelstein to be blocked from achieving tenure at DePaul University. Dershowitz's campaign was successful. Finkelstein did not get tenure, and he eventually resigned. In 2014, Stephen Salida lost his job offer from the University of Illinois. This was over tweets that were disrespectful of Israel. Salida is now a school bus driver. Angela Davis also had one of her talks canceled at Butler University. Closer to home, Valentina Azarova was denied a position at the University of Toronto, despite being the unanimous choice of faculty. The Canadian Association of University Teachers has also censured the university. Full disclosure, I'm a PhD student at U of T. My union, QP3907, has expressed its support for the censure. Their statement reads, As a labor union, QP believes in academic freedom, fair and transparent hiring practices, and the belief that the right person should always get the job. In the most recent case of Dr. Valentina Azarova, Academic freedom was not granted, and the hiring process was corrupted by a politically motivated decision made to appease wealthy and powerful donors. The result of this was that the right person did not get the job. Less known is the case of Professor Faisal Baba. 
Also in Toronto, Baba teaches human rights at York University's Osgoode Law School. Last year, he was part of a debate about the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance's working definition of anti-Semitism. Now, several scholars, including Baba, have argued that this definition is vague and confusing. In several instances, it equates the state of Israel with Jewish people. That could mean that legitimate criticism could be construed as anti-Semitism, and it often has. The debate was June of last year. Baba made two claims that upset other participants. We'll play the clips in full. And I, I would just, uh, to answer the question that was put to me, look, the question about self-determination and Zionism, I mean, Zionism is not actually or accurately about self-determination. It's about Jewish supremacy. It's about, in, it insists upon Jewish supremacy in the Holy Land. And for that reason, it is racist and it's incompatible with a vision of Palestinian, it's incompatible with a vision of Palestinian human rights. It's incompatible with Palestinian self-determination. So you can't, you can't speak out of both sides of your mouth. Baba was then later asked if it would be anti-Semitic to deny the Holocaust. He agreed it would. What do you have accusing the Jews as a people or Israel as a state of inventing or exaggerating the Holocaust? Do you have a problem with that? Um, uh, accusing Jewish citizens of being more loyal to Israel or to the alleged priorities of Jews worldwide than to the interests of their own nations? Do you have a problem with that? I'm trying to understand- Bernie, it's, it's different to accuse the Jews as a people of inventing the Holocaust. Uh, that's one thing. It's another thing to accuse the state of Israel of exaggerating the Holocaust. Uh, do you accept that? The state of Israel? I don't think it says that. It, it conflates the two. It, I mean, the definition itself it's con conflates very, Jews and very, Israel. They're two very separate examples. No, they're, but they're, they're worked into the same example. Accusing uh, the Jews as a people or Israel as a state of inventing or exaggerating the Holocaust. So, sure, accusing the Jews as a people of inventing the Holocaust is a classic anti-Semitic trope. And accusing Israel as a state of exaggerating the Holocaust could be, for some, a plausible argument. The pushback was intense. B'nai B'rith Canada issued a letter to York University claiming anti-Semitism and asking for Baba to be removed from teaching his course. Quote, any version of human rights that does not include a firm rejection of anti-Semitism is ethically and morally bankrupt. Students at York University and Osgoode Law School deserve better. Baba claims his ideas are being misconstrued. He says he was making a careful academic point. He was rejecting the conflation of the state and the Jewish people. I quote, there's an important difference between Jews as a people and Israel as a state. It's actually anti-Semitic to espouse the opposite. There's also a significant difference between inventing something that happened and exaggerating it. The former is impossible, while the latter is not. Independent Jewish Voices of Canada supported Baba and called the attacks on him a right-wing smear campaign. For more on the debate, I called up the man himself, Faisal Baba. I was approached by organizers at the Center for Free Expression and the CCLA, the Canadian uh, Center for Civil, Civil Liberties. Liberties. Yeah. They wanted to organize a panel that would bring divergent opinions in dialogue with one another 
about a subject that needed debate and discussion, and that was a global building uh, consensus building around a definition proposed by an organization called the International Holocaust Remembrance Association, redefining or defining anti-Semitism. And there's a, a history to that definition, but we were at the stage last summer where there was proposed legislation moving forward in Ontario to adopt this IHRA definition into law, and it would have had an impact on the interpretation of Ontario's legislation. And that was causing some concern about freedom of thought, freedom of expression, academic freedom, and in particular, the freedom to advocate for Palestinian human rights. So that IHRA definition, very important, right? Because it's been adopted by some universities that the Trump administration has used it to consider sort of weaponizing it against organizations like Oxfam, Amnesty, Human Rights Watch. Tell me a little bit more about it and and wh- what has the, the criticism of this definition been? Well, what I understand from people that have been following it, Independent Jewish Voices, for example, is an organization that has published really useful tools for understanding the IHRA definition, its history, its purpose, its function, and how it's been how its its purpose has evolved over the years. But initially, my understanding is it was developed in an effort to try to connect the theory or abstract definition of anti-Semitism to a a practical setting. How, How should police officers or teachers, public officials, others identify instances where anti-Semitism may be occurring. It was not designed initially to create prohibitions or laws with consequences, penalties, or the like. But over the years, it uh, has come to be deployed that way. And so even its creators, Ken Stern, one of its originators, has been quoted in the media saying that he's uh, concerned about the deployment of this definition that he was involved in developing for the purpose of stifling criticism of Israel, policing speech, and limiting the ability of people who advocate for Palestinian human rights to do so. And so I was invited to bring, I think, what the organizers saw as a pro-Palestinian or a skeptical position with respect to the IHRA definition to the table. I was the only non-Jewish person participating in the panel. There were three other people debating. Two of them were defending the IHRA definition. One of them was like me, criticizing it. And that was a representative from Independent Jewish Voices. I wasn't representing any any group. I was there as a, a person, an individual, I guess an academic who uh, doesn't, I don't really work on Palestine per se, but I work on human rights generally. And I work in the area of anti-discrimination. And my approach to the Palestine question or the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is really through a lens of discrimination. And what does it mean for systemic discrimination to exist? How do you identify it and how do you call it out? And that was very relevant at the time because we're talking June of 2020. I think that the panel happened a week or 10 days after the ugly images from the United States emerged, in particular, the murder of George Floyd. And so that was on everybody's minds, including mine. So there's a couple um, issues that are cited or in question here. I mean, the one that got controversial, I'll take them sort of step by step, but there's a section in which you talk about and compare 
Jewish supremacy and white supremacy. Can you sort of take me back to what argument were you making there? Yeah, I didn't really, I didn't actually draw the comparison. I was disputing an argument being made by one of the other panelists that Israel and that Zionism, the ideology of Zionism on which Israel is based, is a means for realizing the just cause of Jewish self-determination. And what I said was that whatever Jewish self-determination means for, for Palestinians, it has only meant Jewish supremacy. And that Zionism has practiced in Israel as built through Israeli law and based on its own, its own claims, uh, on its own terms, is, a, is an ideology of Jewish supremacy, not one of equality with non-Jews. And yet there's this problem that there's a significant non-Jewish population there. So I, my, my remarks went into detail on that, but the comment specifically about Jewish supremacy was, it was my response to an, a different panelist asserting self-determination as some sort of justification for Israeli action. And I, and I, I was contesting that description and offering a different description to which he or someone else responded. Are you saying that it's the same as white supremacy? And I, and I, and I, and I said, I'm saying that supremacy is supremacy. I don't know that I said that, that, but that, I mean, that was essentially the essence of my response is that I would call it whatever it is. It is what it is. And I didn't back down from using the phrase Jewish supremacy. Now, at the time, that may have been a courageous thing to do because not a lot of people were using that language. I mean, it didn't feel like that to me and it didn't actually, I was surprised that it, it was met with such shock or, or I mean, I, I'm not surprised that people might disagree with me and want to argue the point, but I was surprised at how stunned anyway, one, of the pa- one or two of the panelists appeared to be. And I think part of the problem is that people are in their echo chambers. And I do believe that those individuals are not used to speaking with people who are highly critical of Israel on principled grounds, people that they might that they might otherwise respect. Yeah, I mean, to split hairs a little bit, but I think it's important because one of the pa- panelists didn't seem to get it because I watched a little bit more of the debate as well. And one of the panelists kept suggesting that you were denying the right of Jewish self-determination. But if I if I've got you right here, you're saying it's not the self determination; it's the it's the Zionism like as constructed, which th- another one of my interviewees on the show, Rashid Khalidi, makes a pretty uh, pretty compelling argument that it that is on its own terms a colonial project. So the so the critique of Zionism is not necessarily the critique of there being a state, right? Well, I think the point I was making was the practice of the state itself, not the state's existence. I think the concept of Jewish self-determination is a contested one and is not as clear as some of its defenders may want to make it out to be sometimes. But that wasn't the point I was making, and it wasn't the debate we were having, really. But that's, I mean, that's part of the part of the attack is to is to recontextualize or decontextualize what I was saying and to try to paint it in some totally different light. And so, you know, the the whole debate was not supposed to be about Israel-Palestine. The debate was about defining anti-Semitism and the the climate for free speech in North America. 
And so that's why I say it's important. I was responding to comments that other panelists made starting to opine on Israel. And I, I couldn't just, you know, not offer a different, a different view where I, where I had a different view. In the letter that Benai Brith writes, and, and I'm going to ask you about that in a second, but the, the, the second thing that they draw attention to is an exchange you have around exaggerating the Holocaust. And there's sort of a back and forth between a conversation of people who say Jews might exaggerate the Holocaust, and everyone sort of agrees that that's a classic anti-Semitic position versus what the state may do. Can you tell me a little bit about, it's, it's a little bit of a difficult academic and semantic conversation to sort of wade through, but what's the, what's the full context of what is being discussed there? Yeah, I mean, that one's just abs absurd how it came to be cast because we weren't actually talking about exaggerating the Holocaust or not exaggerating the Holocaust. Again, I was responding to an argument, a, a really poor argument, I th in my opinion, being made by one of the other panelists in defense of the IHRA definition, which has a number of examples uh, of anti-Semitism. And one of the examples, and so this other panelist was saying, there's nothing wrong with these examples. They're clear and it's it's clear that what they're prohibiting is stuff that should be prohibited. And I and I said, well, look, they're not clear. They're actually really poorly drafted. And I gave the example of this one example, which talks about denying the Holocaust and exaggerating the Holocaust in the same example. And so my point was that there's a difference between Holocaust denial and Holocaust exaggeration, and that part of what makes this example a bad example is that it's conflating that distinction. In, ma in many ways, the point I was making is that it undermines Holocaust denial as really something horrible uh, because the Holocaust can't be denied. It's, it happened. But the Holocaust can be exaggerated. It could be exaggerated. I, I wasn't making any empirical claim about whether it ever has been exaggerated. I'm sure it has, but I, I wasn't actually making that point. And I, and I certainly never said that Israel exaggerates the Holocaust, because I, again, I don't know. It's possible that Israel does, it's possible, possible that it doesn't. I should certainly be permitted, one should be permitted to make an argument that somebody is exaggerating the Holocaust, whereas nobody should ever be making an argument that the Holocaust didn't happen because it's simply factually untrue and it, and it ends up spreading hate and misinformation. So, you know, I, I was drawing a, an, an important definitional or conceptual distinction between those two things. And in the course of doing that, I said, it's possible to argue that somebody is exaggerating the Holocaust. And, and by making that comment, I get cast as, as somebody who's accusing Israel of exaggerating the number of Jews killed during World War II, which is actually not at all what I said. In fact, I think just a few moments before that, I said quite explicitly that the Holocaust happened and that, that it's a historical fact. So those who were attacking me were no doubt acting on bad faith. And I mean, if they if they if they actually watched the the tape, they would have seen that I didn't say any I didn't say what they said that I said. But who who might be exaggerating the Holocaust? Because you said just a second earlier that you're sure someone might have. Because I, I, this one's tricky for me because I feel like I understand the, you know, people have made this argument, Finkelstein, Holocaust industry type stuff that like it's, it's, it's mobilized politically in quite 
nefarious ways to enact policies that we ought to reject. But I don't know if they make the claim that anyone, they make the claim that's being exaggerated. Like that seems to me a, a pretty, even to put it on the table, you could see how someone might be worried about that. I don't know. I mean, so I, what I've come to learn since this, since all of this was blown up is that what some people hear when you talk about ho- exaggerating the Holocaust, all they hear is ex- you're talking about exaggerating the number and somehow the 6 million figure has become sacred. I don't think that's the only way that the Holocaust could be exaggerated. I mean, there's, there's lots of ways it could be exaggerated or, or at least that people could argue about whether it is being exaggerated. So somebody could argue that the Holocaust is the worst thing that's ever happened in human history. And someone else could take the position that that's an exaggeration of the Holocaust, that there, there are other things, there are many other things that are far worse. I mean, my point was not, like I said, about whether the Holo- whether you can make a good argument that anybody has ever exaggerated the Holocaust. My, my point was simply that there is a really meaningful difference between Holocaust denial and the misuse of the Holocaust or the twisting of the Holocaust. Holocaust denial is its own thing. And that is anti-Semitism. And it's important to recognize that as such and not to blur those lines. The problem with the IHRA definition is that it blurs lines left, right, and center. I think it does it intentionally to, and and it does it in, in dangerous ways to cast the net too wide. So Faisal, what happens after the debate? Nothing. I got, actually, I got a lot of really positive feedback. It was really well attended. People thought that that the two of us who were critical of the IHRA definition won the day, but of course I was I was only hearing from uh, people who tended to agree with me. I heard no, I heard nothing from critics or detractors, and that was fine. But then, after about two weeks, it was brought to my attention that a petition had been posted by Bene Brith, um, calling on my employer to remove me from the classroom from from teaching human rights because a person like like me, someone who holds my views could certainly not be trusted to teach law students about human rights. And so that changed everything because I then started to receive hate mail and taunts and threats, even a death threat, mailed physically mailed to my office at uh, York University. I've never, I don't know that I've ever spoken to someone that has received death threats. Pretty creepy feeling. <laughs> I would imagine <laughs> to op- so. To open an envelope and to see that somebody put some attention into, you know, writing this thing and putting it in an envelope and mailing it into, it was from the United States. It was clearly, to me, it was clearly menacing, uh, Islamophobic, um, and threatening. It, it, you know, said something like, wait till you see, we're, you know, we're going to come there and we're going we're gonna to take care of you. Some, some, something to that effect. How serious do you take that kind of letter? Well, I reported it to my employer, who up to that point had not issued a public statement in response to the petition that was actually addressed to the president of York University. And my employer took it very seriously. The The university contacted the police, the, the campus police, and they launched an investigation. Did they respond at all to the substance of the B'nai B'rith letter and the B'nai B'rith's demands that you no longer teach? The university did two things. Publicly, the president issued a statement sometime in the summer or fall 
when, when this was happening, a general statement talking about the importance of freedom of expression and academic freedom. Privately, the president was reassuring me that nothing was going to happen to me, that I was going to, there's going to be no interference in my academic freedom. There's going to be no consequence. And she was communicating the same thing. I'm told I, I saw, I've seen copies of correspondence to B'nai B'rith. Um, but the university was not willing to communicate anything publicly. So, you know, if you Google my name, uh, you'll see that this national organization has called for me to be pulled from the classroom and if you're wondering what York University did about it or wants to do about it, you'll be left wondering because there is no official position. And so my faculty association, my union, has grieved that failure on the part of the university and it's currently in uh, litigation. So we'll see what, what a labor arbitrator decides about that. Who else has defended and supported you throughout this? Oh, so many people. I was overwhelmed with support. In fact, the amount of public sort of stranger feedback that I got has far outweighed the negativity of the threats and the, and, and the hate mail. I, I received so many emails from groups offering to support me, to pe people, individuals, writing letters to the president of the university, writing letters to, I don't know, various public officials, expressing outrage over my treatment, treat, the treatment that I was receiving. I couldn't believe it. Like it really is uh, wonderful to see that spirit from your fellow citizens kind of manifest. And, and look, it wasn't, it wasn't that I needed that stuff. Like a lot of what people were offering to start campaigns, to write letters, to do this kind of stuff. I didn't really need those things because like I said, I was, I'm, I'm privileged enough to have a secure academic position. This is why academics are free to speak their minds. Like this is why we need to be free to speak our minds, but it really was in, in, inspirational to, to, to see that kind of energy. And the majority of people who I didn't know who were reaching out to me, individuals were Jewish and were outraged, were disgusted by what they saw B'nai B'rith doing, who were sympathetic to Palestinian justice and who thanked me for advocating and for speaking my mind and for doing what I was doing. So it, it really, it reassured me that I, that I was not, that I hadn't, you know, and I, and I, I knew that, that what I I'd spoken the truth and I hadn't, I hadn't actually made any error. This wasn't an instance of me misspeaking or committing an, an error that I needed to apologize for and, and, you know, convince people that I'm not, not really a bad guy. I, I spoke very carefully and I spoke words that I was, that I stood by and hearing that from many, many, many people gave me further reassurance and, and was, was important for me to hear at that point in time. And you mentioned that you've got secure employment, which in situations like this is a real blessing. I mean, given the wider context, Valentina Azarova, Norman Finkelstein, Cornell West, Stephen Salida, critics of Israel and Palestine in academia face face hardships. I was wondering if you were worried at all. I, I don't have the courage that those those folks have, and I haven't suffered the kinds of trials that, that they have. I've picked my battles on this front wisely, I guess. I, 
I, I have never really been willing to hold back on my opinions, but I haven't gone looking for places to spread my opinions either. So, you know, when I'm asked, I'm honest and straightforward and I have, and I have taken public positions that have resulted in like this. I, I guess I'm not afraid of unpopular positions generally, but one, one thing that I have noticed is that I can align myself with any number of unpopular causes, but the only one that gets me a death threat, the only one that gets me, uh, this wasn't the first time that my employer has had phone calls and complaints from members of the community because of the content of my political opinions. The only, but the only stuff that gets me that is my co- public comments or positions that I take relating to Palestinian human rights. I've, I've done disability rights advocacy. I've done national security work. I've taken unpopular positions on a variety of things. I've, I, I, I was involved in a case involving the niqab in the courtroom, the niqab in the citizenship ceremony. There were lots of high emotions and frankly, lots of hate spreading around those issues, but I've never seen the level of hate and aggression directed at any issue like that, that comes from so-called people who care about Israel directed at people who are defending basic fundamental human rights for Palestinians. It's, it's shocking to me. And I'm not somebody who really cares to be on the, in the popular crowd when it comes to ideas or positions, but by far the, the highest price that is paid for holding unpopular views is, is for supporting Palestinian human rights. And so I think that the, the climate is really, really bad for that. I think it's getting better. And I think the current events are, are helping bring people out of the closet and express their Palestinian solidarity. And they're seeing the results on social media. And so more people are having happened to them what, what happened to me, maybe in smaller ways and in different contexts, but they're realizing it and they're saying, wait a minute, this is not right and this is not normal. I mentioned the the cases, the high profile ones, the Valentina Azarova and Norman Finkelsteins of the world. I'm curious about the less high profile, maybe self-censorship or academics who, unlike yourself, aren't willing to go out and venture into uh, unpopular and really contested territory where they'll receive this flack. So a letter like B'nai B'rith, the one that they wrote about you, I wonder what, what effect do you think that has on on other scholars, potentially ones that are a little bit more precarious? Well, the thing about that letter, what became clear to me very soon thereafter was that the letter wasn't really about communicating with the president of York University, because if they wanted to do that, they could. They have a direct line to the to the president of York University. They wanted to publicly hang me out. They wanted to publicly shame me, and they wanted to attract the, all the negative attention that, that, that came to me as a result. That's the point. It creates a climate in which I guess I'm expected to act rationally. And so the next time I want to speak my mind, I would be thinking, do I want to go through that again? And so that's the direct chill. I mean, I'm not, I wouldn't, I don't let that happen. And I, and, and it strengthened my resolve, my resolve, if anything, it's made me want to speak out more on this topic because I can, but I think 
their modus operandi is to is to intimidate and i think for most people it's going to cause them to change their behavior and that's very uh, disconcerting in a democratic society where do things stand with you and the university you mentioned earlier that that your union is filing a grievance because the university didn't take a harder line in defending you the university didn't defend me period and you know that really hurt my feelings and so i'm waiting because again it's this palestine exception if i were an advocate for any other cause racial justice indigenous justice environmental justice and if some organization claiming to speak for some group of concerned canadians tried to deplatform me with with spurious allegations i have no doubt that the university president would stand up and quite proudly want to be seen to be defending me and it really does i mean it hurts me personally but i think it also reveals the the terrible bias that exists systemically structurally in the university sector against palestinians and and their just cause and i'm not palestinian but it has the effect of 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 wrapping those who are allied with palestinians who care about palestinians and who want to speak out about palestinian human rights with that with that silencing chilling intimidating effect and that and that feeling of not really being cared about because i know that i could be I could be speaking about it, about any other any other justice cause and President Lenten would not just agree to publicly defend me but would be tripping over herself to defend me but it's only because I'm speaking out about Palestinian human rights and I I find that terribly disappointing and so I'm very pleased that my union is pressing the president to have some integrity and to do the right thing I'm curious maybe this is like too unfair a question because it's too broad but the role of academia in this struggle um, for Palestinian human rights. Don't know whether to see academics as allies or as uh, complicit in the occupation. And I have, I have a tweet here from Andre Dumi that I wanted to read to you to just kind of hear your take. I mean, he said, academics want to decolonize everything except actual colonies. Get these soft MFs out of here, laugh my ass off. Is that I could I could I would I would probably retweet retweet that. <laughs> um, <laughs> not none. What's the what's the disclaimer? Not necessarily retweeting doesn't necessarily mean endorsing or adopting. But no, I like that. I like that. I like the sentiment. I think there's a truth to that. But like, so so should I be boycotted because I'm a because I'm an academic? I'm complicit. Maybe I I don't know. I think I think that it de- really depends on on what the university is today, and that's. A, a bigger topic than I think we're we're here to get into, but it is a topic that I've written about recently, and I, I would say that the way that the university is going is getting to a, is getting to a place where I wouldn't where I would worry about being able to trust academics to do what what they need to do in order to hold public institutions and public officials to account. That is to speak truth to power. I don't think we're there yet, but. I think we need academics to do their job and to use their academic freedom and to push those bound and to not be afraid to to be at the edges of the boundary of academic freedom, not just in the comfortable core, because we'll we'll lose the the role very quickly if if we cede that territory if we don't if we don't 
exercise the the freedom. I'm wondering kind of what your take is, because are you optimistic that scholars are going to be take are, are going to be able to take a stance on this in the future? I see the general the generational shift that others have observed. I think what's happening in the U.S. is also happening in Canada. I think that it is far less controversial or problematic or challenging for young people to feel and to express feelings of solidarity and sympathy with Palestinian struggle. I've been talking to a lot of people of late who who see uh, a lot more reason to hope things will improve in, in these last couple weeks than they have for years. And sadly, that's as, as a result of the massacres occurring in Gaza under the watchful eye and with the tacit approval of our own government and that of the Biden administration. But let's, my hope is that these lives are not in vain as, as lives in 2014 and 2008, 2009 have been. I mean, how many massacres do we need in Gaza for the world to see the disproportionate violence that is committed against Palestinian people that cannot be blamed on Hamas? And so, like, I think the truth is getting out. It's frustrating for me because I lived in Palestine more than 20 years ago. And what we're seeing now and the conversations were happening that are happening now could have and should have been happening then. They were happening then, but just in very small echo chambers amongst people who were close to the ground and who who, who were speaking the truth back then. But th- that, we, that we are now seeing conversations happening in the mainstream that were so marginal, uh, you know, if, if all I'm complaining about is how long it's taken, I think that's, you know, that's not, that's not too bad. I do have hope that the conversation can change and can improve. And I have no doubt that Palestinians will persist. That's the one thing that they have proven. That was Faisal Baba, Associate Professor at York University's Osgood Law School in Toronto, Ontario. We reached out to York University for comment, but we have yet to receive word. If we hear from them, we will update you next week. And that's it for this week's episode of Darts and Letters. Our lead producer this week was Ren Bangert. Our managing producer is Mark Apollonio. We had research from David Mosscrop and Franklin Bartol. Our theme song and outro is composed by Mike Barber. Our graphic designs are by Dakota Coop. And as always, I'm your host and editor, Gordon Caddick. You can send us feedback by emailing the show. The address is dartsandletterspod at gmail.com. Or you can tweet us at dartsandletters. A follow or a retweet are always appreciated. This is a production of Cited Media, and we are backed by academic research grants that support looking at the concept of public intellectualism. This is also part of a wider project looking at higher education policy in Canada. The lead academic advisor on that project is Dr. Mark Spooner at the University of Regina. Our lead research assistant on the project is Franklin Bartol. We are also supported by our generous patrons. Join us and join them by going to patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. Patrons get content a day early.